Well, amen and amen. Thank you, worship team. I love that hymn. Love it. Well, I can't believe we're on our, our third sermon already in our summer series from John's Gospel. Hard to believe. And, uh, but what a great series it is. There's the title that you might believe. And this morning, I'm going to take you to John 4, the end, really, of John 4, and we're going to have a look at this. Uh, here's my title for you. It's to believe or not to believe. That is the dilemma. I want to tell you a little story that uh, my dad told me many years ago. Uh, I'll never forget it. I don't know how old I was, but dad sat me down one day and he said, Ken, uh, you don't know this, but when I was 17 years old, I got hit by a train. He was crossing a trestle with his brother and a friend in Toronto, and they had their bikes. It was, there were two tracks on this trestle. They were about halfway through when they saw a train approaching to cross. They thought nothing of it until they crossed over onto the other tracks only to realize there was another train coming. So these two trains were converging at them and they began to run, hoping they would outrun the train. Well, the two, well, my, my dad's brother and his friend did make it, but my dad didn't. When dad told me that story, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whether he was, this was a big fib. I didn't know whether it was even believable. Like, who survives getting hit by a train? But then dad proved the fact that he had. He showed me in his legs the coal cinders that were still there in the back of his, of his right leg. And then he pulled out this article from the Toronto Sun that explained uh, that day that my dad got hit. Those are the two, that's his friend and his brother Bill. You can't see it very well, but if you look, you can see a bit of a dotted line going over this trestle and then a vertical line which indicates where dad fell. What saved his life is that he actually hit a bush on his way down and then rolled. It was remarkable that he didn't have a whole a lot of more injuries than he did, but he suffered because of it. My point is this. I remember telling many of my friends about, hey, you, you know what? My dad got hit by a train. And some of my friends looked at me and said, you're crazy. No way. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Others of my friends would say, oh, really? Well, what proof have you got to show me that they, he actually, in fact, had gotten hit by a train. Do you got something to prove what you're telling me? And then I had other friends who actually just believed me outright. Well, all that to tell you that really, when you get into John's gospel and you begin to unpack what's going on here in this gospel account of the life of Christ, it becomes pretty clear from John chapter 20 what John's intention was, and it was this. John tells us, here's why he had picked the various stories that he had put together to give his readers an account of the life of Christ. He says this, verse 31. I know you know this, but I'm going to read it to you. But these things are written that you might, what? Believe. There it is. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. 
Now, I probably, you probably already know this, but as you work your way through the, the John's Gospel, you discover that a hundred times this word believe comes up. So it's a significant word for John. And in almost every case that John uses the word believe, it's in the context of saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so what John does is that he takes various stories that contrast unbelief and belief for the reason of helping his readers understand that Jesus is the one that they must place their full trust in and in him alone. And he does this to remind his readers that faith in Jesus is not only essential, is not only essential to entering into the kingdom of God, but it's absolutely essential to living in the kingdom of God. And so, John, by the time we get to chapter 4 here in our account, we discover that John has already given to us a picture of those who have absolutely refused to believe any of the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. You've got those who are actually still sitting on the fence, asking for more proof before they're going to believe in Jesus. And you've got those who actually do believe fully that Christ is the Son of the living God. And so when we get to John chapter 4 here, I think John is doing a couple things. There's two clear purposes in him choosing this story about the official son. And that is one to show what authentic faith looks like in the kingdom of God. And then second, to show who authentic faith rests in in the kingdom of God. And so let's unpack for a couple of minutes from John chapter 4 uh, the nature of authentic biblical faith in God's kingdom. Now, when you get to verse 43, we're told here that after two days of being in Samaria, he leaves that region, he heads to Galilee, and Jesus now goes back to the town of Cana, where he had just been back a wee bit ago, and had changed water into wine. And in that account, John indicates that this was the first sign that displayed the glory of Christ. Now, in John's gospel, you're going to discover that signs are very, very important. And John has a number of signs that are scattered throughout the entirety of his gospel with the intention of convincing his readers that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is worthy of their, of their faith. Now, the signs that John chooses in his gospel all act as pointers to something far greater than the sign itself. They're pointers, pointers to Jesus and him alone, that he is God in the flesh, and that he is God's Savior of the world. I love this comment from Carson, talking about signs. He says, Jesus' miracles are never simple, simply naked displays of power, still less are they neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs significant are dis significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that can be perceived with the eyes of faith. Now, I'll grant you, signs can be a little confusing. And here's some signs I'm going to show you out there that can be a little confusing if you ran across them. Here's one here. Probably a town you want to avoid. 
Welcome to accident. I'm not sure I want to drive into that town, but rather turn my car around and beat it. Well, here's another one that might just, you know, I'm not sure about this one. Uh, doesn't look like a good end at all, except for the alligator. You might want to avoid that. Here's another one. Yeah. Somebody was not having a good caffeinated day when they produced that one. Here's another. Now, is that not confusing? I wouldn't know what to do if I came across this sign. You can't go straight, you can't go back, left or right, but you're dead stopped. So anyway, signs can be very confusing, but the signs, let me, let me tell you, the signs that John chooses in his gospel clearly highlight and place an unmistakable spotlight on Jesus and his glory. You see, for John, the whole concept of believing in Christ is so very important. To believe in Jesus isn't just to acknowledge him intellectually or mentally, but, and, and to simply say, yep, yep, I, I believe in Jesus. How about you? No, no. No, you see, for John, to believe according to his gospel is to acknowledge that every claim about Jesus is absolutely true. It's to yield completely, it's to yield to his allegiance completely, and it's to trust him as your only hope and savior from sin and death. So John is illustrating this in his, this account that he chooses in John chapter 4. Now, when you get to verse 4, 44 of chapter 4, Jesus says something very interesting that, uh, that John alludes to. He says, Jesus himself had pointed out that a, that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so John immediately is beginning to unpack for us the contrast between belief and unbelief. And he points out right at the start of this story that there were those in the days of Christ who didn't believe for one minute that he was in fact a prophet sent by God. No, in their minds he was still that boy from Bethlehem, a carpenter's son, and he was nothing else other than that. And then John points out this, go down to verse 45, he says this about the Galileans. He says that when they arrived, when Jesus arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him for what reason? It says because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. So now John contrasts another group. He's got a group that don't buy into anything that Jesus has said. They don't believe that he is, he is in fact, the Son of God, one iota. But then there's this group that actually welcomed Jesus. The truth of the matter is that this is a group that were curious about Christ. They really hadn't bought into who Jesus was, but rather they had bought into the miracles he was performing. In their minds, Jesus was a terrific sideshow. In their minds, the Lord Jesus was entertainment. And so they welcomed him because they wanted to see more. Their whole philosophy was, a few more miracles, please, Jesus. And then maybe, just maybe, we might believe in you. But both of these groups held Jesus at a distance, didn't they? Neither of, the, of these groups made any personal commitment to the living Christ. 
both of these groups were more interested in what he could do than in Jesus himself. The fact of the matter is, we have people today just like these two groups. We've got people who disclaim who Jesus is entirely, and we've got people today who are curious about Jesus. We've got lots of folk who say, no, thank you, I'm not interested. That's good for you, but it's not good for me. I remember very clearly years ago going to a Christmas party that Leslie and I were invited to on our street. And uh, we wanted to get to know our neighbors, and uh, so we went. And I got chatting with a, a fellow from Germany who had come over to work in the Toyota plant. And as we chatted, as men do, we both asked each other what we did. As soon as I said to this chap that I was a minister, I could just see this, this, this look of, of, a, of a ghast. And he began to back up and wave his hands, and he said to me, no, thank you, I want no part of that. And he turned around and left. And there I was standing there thinking, what did I just do? I, I'm sure I put on my deodorant. Uh, what has gone on? And you know what? We never talked again. I never even saw the guy again. And yet he lived on my street. I'm sure when he saw me coming out of my front door, he hid in his house until I was gone. But that was it. No further encounter in the gospel. No interest in the gospel whatsoever. But then we've got people in our day who are curious about Jesus. We've all met these folks. Uh, people who, who attend church. People who even attend Bible studies over a period of time. And uh, they... they they keep kicking the biblical tires, if you wish, but they never buy into Jesus. They never come to be fully committed to Jesus. They're always a bystander, always looking in through the windows, curious, but no more. And so we've got both of those individuals, both of those groups found here in the context of John's gospel. You see, what Jesus Christ is looking for and what John is going to unpack for us is what real biblical faith, what authentic faith in Christ actually looks like. And we're going to see it in the Samaritans, and we're going to see it in this royal official who, who comes seeking out the living Christ. Now, the story of this official is found in verse 46. And we aren't told a whole lot about him other than that he was a, a, a royal official, and so the idea here is that he probably worked in Herod's court and he, he uh, worked with the upper echelon of society. That was a group that he, he, uh, he rubbed shoulders with on a daily basis. And, and we're, we're told that uh, probably he was a man of some wealth because he does have servants. And so we were told that a servant, you know, leaves his home in Capernaum and heads up to Cana to meet him on the road to tell him about a servant. So he's probably a fellow of wealth. He's got some means behind him. But we also know this, that he was a family man. We know that this fellow had a son that he obviously dearly loved, and he was a man with limitations and needs. Because we, we have the story of him seeking out Jesus in desperation. I mean, it's clear that he had exhausted all avenues to, to bring health to his son. He had nothing left in the basket. 
There was nothing more that could be done physically for him. If Jesus didn't step into this picture, his son was going to die, and that was the end of the story. And so the, the text tells us that he came looking for Christ in his desperate need. He's, he's frankly just like you and I. We've got needs. We've got limitations that we cannot meet, but Jesus can. He does the wise thing. It's obvious that he had heard about Jesus somewhere along the line. I don't think he'd seen Jesus in action, but he'd heard about him in Capernaum. And so literally, he drops everything he's doing. He heads to Cana, four hours away, to find this Jesus. And then the text tells us this, that, uh, that when he found Jesus, he begged him. The text says in verse 47, he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now, the word begged here is an interesting word. It has the idea that he, he repeatedly pleaded with Jesus. He kept asking over and over and over again for Jesus to come to his home. He wasn't going to settle for no answer. He wasn't going to be ignored. He was going to make sure that Jesus knew just how desperate he was and how desperate his son's situation was. And he wasn't about to leave that point with Jesus until he had some response from Jesus. So clearly, somehow, this guy believed that Jesus was the only one who could make a difference between life or death for his son. So he humbles himself. This guy's an official. They don't humble themselves. But he humbles himself before his servants, before the crowd around them, him, before Jesus himself, and begs the Savior to act. And so I really believe that John's intention in choosing this story in our text this morning is because John wants to identify three characteristics of what authentic faith actually looks like. What is it? He defines it for us, I think, very clearly, its nature. That first of all, it's this. Authentic, authentic faith is a committed faith and not a curious faith. Authentic faith is a committed faith and not a curious faith. Now, you'll notice again what John does at the beginning of the story. And he's making a contrast between the Samaritans and their commitment to Jesus, their belief in Jesus, and the Gal Galileans who simply were curious about Jesus and held him at a distance. And John tells us, and I've already told you this, that they, they were a group of people, apparently, who had seen all that Jesus had done back in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. And so they... They wanted just a little more of the sideshow. Uh, Jesus was an er interesting fellow. He did interesting things that nobody else did, so we'd like, we'd like a little more, please. And that's really where their curiosity ended. You see, there, there are a lot of people today who are fans of Jesus. There are people in our day who like Jesus. You probably know people who are fascinated by Jesus. 
people who like some of his teaching, people who like certain characteristics of Jesus. But friends, listen to me. Listen, John is making it very clear that that just isn't enough. It's not enough just to be curious. It's not enough just to be a fan of Jesus. That is not authentic faith. In fact, if you look at the text here, Jesus condemns this type of faith right here in our story because he sees the limitations and the dangers of such a curious faith. And Jesus, frankly, refuses to commit himself to those who are stuck on this level of demanding a little more, Jesus, please, just a little more, please, and then maybe I might believe in you. Notice what he says in verse 48. <coughs> You've got this, this official begging. And then Jesus responds this way, which seems a, a little out of place until you understand what he's doing. He says in 48, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, the, the you here in verse 48 is actually in the plural tense. So Jesus is not just addressing the official, he's addressing the entire crowd. And what he's pointing out is this, he really is saying to the official, your search for me is no different from the crowd's search for me. Like them, you also just want another sign. Another miracle, please. You're no different than they are in their demand of me. And so Jesus, Jesus is making it clear that he understands that this crowd, and frankly, this official initially, aren't really interested in him per se, in his person per se, but they're more interested in what Jesus can do for them. They want the benefits of Jesus, but they don't want Jesus himself. They want Jesus to act and to show them something miraculous, but not for the sake of really believing in him. And so Jesus is making it very clear that, there's, that this crowd, as there are in our world, there's all kinds of people who are spiritually curious about Jesus, but they never come to a place of actually knowing Jesus authentically. And so Jesus' whole, whole design in his comment in verse 48 to this official was frankly to move him from having a feeble, curious faith in what Jesus could do to a deep, committed faith in Jesus himself. You see, true biblical faith makes us not into fans of Jesus, but into followers of Jesus. And there's a marked difference between the two that John is outlining for us in the stories he chooses. True biblical faith is somebody who is fully committed to being in relationship with Christ, who has a, 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 a desire to know Jesus intimately and fully. This is someone who wants to obey all that Jesus says, who wants to grow in Christ, who wants to seek to be like Christ, and who wants to be on mission with Jesus. That's why the first Christians, Christians in the first century were labeled people of the way, because their lives not only followed Jesus, but their lives reflected Jesus. And therefore, they were, they were called people of the way. 
True faith, true faith causes us to live for him, to exist for him, and not for ourselves. Now we see this illustrated here. We see a committed faith in the life of the Samaritans. Notice what they did. This group of townspeople, after they heard the testimony of this lady, it says that they sought Jesus out. In fact, it says that they urged Jesus to stay with them for another two days, and because of his words, many more became believers. And so this is a crowd who weren't interested in the sideshow. No, they were interested in Jesus. And they wanted to hear him out. They wanted to hear what he had to say because they saw the difference in this woman as a result of her encounter with Christ, and they now wondered what difference that could come in their lives. We also see in the royal official also demonstration of true faith, a committed faith, in that his faith began in crisis. When he first sought Jesus out, he wasn't interested in Jesus for himself. He was seeking Jesus out for his son. And his desire was for Jesus then to exhibit his power and to heal his son. But he too came to a point of being convinced about Christ. Because we notice that when Jesus finally said to the official, you may go, your son will live, do you notice what the official did? He stopped begging. He left the presence of Christ, convinced that what Jesus had just said to him, in fact, had happened. He no longer stayed around in a state of crisis, but now he was in a state of peace because something had happened inwardly with this man. He had moved from a, a faith in crisis to a faith that was convinced of who Jesus actually was. You see, our world operates under this principle. Seeing is believing. Show me, and then I'll believe you. But this official left Jesus that day with the opposite conviction that believing is seeing. He left with the same kind of faith that's spoken of in, about Abraham in John chapter 8. Let's go there. John chapter 8. Look at this verse concerning Abraham. And verse 56, this man exhibits this same faith that Abraham had. Your, it says here in John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He sought and was glad. I would suggest to you this man also exhibited the same kind of faith that our brother Moses had. That's also spoken of over in Hebrews chapter 11. Head over to Hebrews chapter 11 and 27 and look at the, the type of faith that is described concerning our brother Moses. It says, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Noticed, he was, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. See, that's the kind of faith this, this official now is exhibiting because of his encounter <coughs> with the, the living Christ. He no longer argues with Jesus. He trusts his promise. He doesn't ask for any more proof. 
And frankly, he has no proof before him that Jesus has in fact fulfilled what he said he would do, but he is convinced and he is committed to the word of Christ, which is confirmed the following day back in our text in John 4, when the servant finally finds his, his master in John 4, and he confirms with him what Christ in fact said he, was do, he would do. And now this man has a, a faith that is, that is confirmed only in Jesus. You see, faith sees the unseen. And faith that is authentic is convinced without a shadow of a doubt that the spiritual realm is a real realm and true even though you can't touch it. And that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, and he's just as real as the chair you're sitting on this morning, even though you can't see him. That's the kind of faith that this man exhibits in our story this morning. God had moved this man from a faith in crisis to a faith that was confident only in Jesus. You see, true biblical faith trusts Jesus even when the world around you thinks you're crazy to do so. True biblical faith trusts Jesus even when there is no physical proof in front of you to do so. True biblical faith trusts Jesus even when life is full of desperation and despair. True biblical faith trusts Jesus even when life is hard because it knows that the best is yet to come and that God is able to work out all things for our eternal good someday. It trusts Jesus because you know he is worthy of your full trust. Second, true biblical faith is an informed faith, not a blind faith. It's an informed faith, not a blind faith. Listen, true biblical faith is grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. There is absolute content to our faith. Authentic faith is supported by the truth and upheld by the historical facts about the living Christ. True biblical faith is not a leap in the dark. It's not pie-in-the-sky thinking, and it isn't the figment of our imaginations. No, true biblical faith, as one commentator said, is an informed belief about Jesus Christ. Luther is absolutely right when he says, in faith one must look to nothing but the word of God. And John illustrates that here in the story of the Samaritans. Go back there for a minute with me. Chapter 4 and verse 39, and I want you to see what happens here to this group. It says that many of the Samaritans from their town believed in Jesus. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. So these dear ones heard, heard from her of the difference that Jesus had now made in her life. And I would suggest to you that not only did they hear the difference, but they saw it. When they saw how different she was from what she once was from the past, the end result is this. Verse 47, so the Samaritans came to Jesus. They then sought him out. They urged him to stay. And, as a, 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 and the end result of that 
is found in verse 41. And it says this, this is significant, because of his words. There it is. That's an informed faith. Because of his words, many more believe, became believers. Because they witnessed the firsthand change in this girl's life, they sought Jesus out, not because they were looking for more entertainment, but because they were looking from salvation from sin that she too had just found. And when they heard from Jesus himself, the end result was that they trusted in the truth about Jesus and they trusted in Jesus themselves. Notice the official, the process that he takes. The same thing happens. He has hearsay about Jesus at the very beginning. He's never met Jesus. He really doesn't know who he is, but somehow he's heard that he's able to heal. He seeks him out, not for his own sake, but for the sake of his son. He's not interested really in Jesus. He just wants what Jesus can provide. But he finally finds Jesus, and something miraculous happens in his heart. When Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. God the Holy Spirit enabled this man, it says in verse 50, to take Jesus at his word. That is very significant. He trusted in the word of Christ that very moment. He placed his faith in the words of Jesus that very moment. And that's what sparked a living faith in this man. And then that faith was confirmed the following day with the testimony of a servant about his boy who was now alive. That's remarkable. And so what you're witnessing here in John's gospel, he's making it very clear to us, the biblical faith was formed in the Samaritans as they were informed about Jesus. And biblical faith was formed in the royal official as he was informed about Jesus. And may I suggest to you, and biblical faith was formed in you when you too were informed about Jesus. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes through the hearing of God's word. And we have two clear examples of that taking place here. As they heard about Jesus and then heard Jesus himself, their faith was formed, and it was established, and they trusted authentically in the living Christ. And so biblical faith is not a leap in the dark. It's not an ir irrational commitment, as many claim, but it is always grounded in the truth. It's always grounded in the facts about Jesus, and it always involves a personal trust and a personal, co personal commitment to Jesus himself. Thirdly, authentic faith is a persevering faith and not a passive faith. It's a persevering faith and not a passive faith. Now again, going back to our text, we see the progression of their faith. Back to the, our, our Samaritan friends. So they, they hear the testimony from this lady, and then they seek out Christ themselves 
and that seeking results in many more of them becoming believers. And then we hear this testimony of this group to the lady in verse 42. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And notice the next words, And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And so again, God had moved their faith along. God had moved the faith of this woman. She'd come to living faith in Christ. What was the end result of that? She obviously testified of Christ to the townspeople. What was the end result of that? They then sought Jesus out for themselves. And they then believed fully in the living Christ. Their faith had persevered and had grown in the living Jesus. The same thing had happened to the official in our text. Likewise, he seeks Jesus out in crisis. He really doesn't know anything about Jesus, but enough to understand that maybe, maybe he could heal his son. So he seeks him out. And then we're told that he, after the words of Christ to him, he takes Jesus at his word. And then notice the progression, the perseverance of his faith, starting in verse 51. While he was still on the way, his servant met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, <coughs> the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so see the progression of the official's faith in Christ? Initially, it's shallow, but then it's confirmed by the servant when he says, it happened. Whatever it was that Jesus said to you, he did. And it happened at the exact hour that he said it. That confirmed and strengthened this man's faith in Christ. And then we're told this in verse 53, so he and all his household believed. He went home and shared that Jesus with the rest of his household. He didn't bring Jesus with him physically. He did spiritually in his heart. He then told them of what Christ had done. And result, the entire household came to faith in Christ. There's the progression of his faith. It persevered. And so John is illustrating that authentic faith always continues. It always grows. It, it deepens. It develops throughout the course of the entirety of our Christian lives. Yeah, there are times when our faith may be in crisis. There are times when faith does spurt and sputter along, but it always clings to the person and work of Christ to the very end, no matter what. Remember in John chapter 6, after a whole slew of disciples left Christ, and John, Jesus turns to his disciples and say, says to them, do you want to leave too? Are you next? What did they say to Jesus that is evidence, evident of authentic faith? They said to Christ, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know you are the Holy One of God. That's authentic faith. You see, authentic faith isn't, isn't just a past action that you look back at. No, no, authentic faith is something that keeps on believing and it keeps on depending and it keeps on trusting Jesus to 
the very end. That's the faith we're seeing here in our text this morning from the Samaritans and this official. They trusted Jesus all the way through their crisis. They trusted Jesus completely, convinced that he was, in fact, the Christ. And so, you know, friends, your testimony in Christ shouldn't be a rehearsal of the past, but it should be a a rehearsal of your present recounting of how your faith is being lived out and refined and stretched and strengthened and developed day by day by day in the workplace, on the playground, at school, or wherever you may be. Truth of the matter, the truth of the matter of fact is that authentic faith follows you wherever you go. It's a part of you because you're in Christ. It gets up with you in the morning and it comes home with you at night because you are, present tense, a believer and a follower of Jesus. So faith that is authentic is committed and informed and persevering, but it's also in the person of Christ. It's also in the person of Christ. That is where it rests. That is where it rests. It rests only in Jesus. Only in Jesus. And that has been John's emphasis throughout the entirety of his gospel. He wants his readers and his audience to realize that it's only in Christ that salvation is found. It's only in Jesus where faith must be formed. In in verse 54... John makes a very interesting comment. At the conclusion of this miracle, John adds this little note. He says, this was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from from Judea to Galilee. Now, truth of the matter is, it wasn't the second miraculous sign that Jesus had done to date. There were many, many others. But it was the second sign done in Cana. It was the second sign done in Cana. It was the second sign done in Cana that proved without a doubt the glory of Christ. It was the second sign done in Cana that pointed his readers to Jesus as the master. It was the second sign done that caused people to place their full, authentic faith in the living Christ. And that's John's emphasis here. Here is what the end result should be. When you encounter this Christ, it must cause you to fall on your knees before him and to trust him fully by faith. That is the end result of encountering the Lord Jesus. Because what John does here in this account is he points out that Jesus possesses not only merciful grace, but sovereign grace as well. We see his merciful grace, that Jesus has absolute power over the natural world and over the spiritual world. I mean, just as Jesus can change water into the best wine possible, it is nothing for the living Christ, nothing to restore to full health, a disease-ridden body on the brink of death. And so what John is giving us a picture of here is a Jesus that, that, that both nature and sickness surrendered to the command and will of Jesus instantly and totally because he is the creator God. He is 
the giver of life, both physically and spiritually. And so we see that when Jesus hears the desperate cry of this official, he responds with merciful grace to him. Not because he had to, not because he was forced to, but because he wanted to. Because that exhibits the heart of the living God. It is full of mercy, and it's full of compassion, and it's full of grace towards you and I. And it always has been. And the good news is God still responds to you and I with the same grace, mercy, and compassion. Christ sees your need. Christ hears your cry, whether it's for you or for somebody else. And he is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever think or even imagine. But Christ also responded with sovereign grace. You see, it doesn't matter how small or large your need is. It doesn't matter whether it's physical or spiritual. It doesn't matter where, where, where it is that you are in our world. He always hears and he's always able to respond. I love this quote. Somebody has said, we see here the utter sufficiency of his grace. For those at a distance, as well as those nearby. For those who do not seek it for themselves, as well as, as those who do. For needs of the body, as well as needs of the spirit. For those who are young, as well as those who are mature. Christ is enough. And that's the point. You see, this official thought Jesus had to come to his home to heal his son. But Jesus proved otherwise. With a word from a distance, the act was done. The son was better at the exact moment that Jesus had spoken the words. So time, space, and distance aren't an issue for Jesus. They never have been. They are for us, but they aren't for Christ. The gospel and God's power is never walled in, and it's never inhibited by the physical or the geographical. I love this other comment. Somebody has said, Jesus' first miracle revealed his power over time. And in the second miracle, Jesus showed his power over space. Even time and space are subject to God's sovereignty, and they are his servants for his will and his glory. God is able to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, with whomever he wants. Let me tell you this real story. I know my time is long gone. I remember this uh, so vividly in my mind. I, got a, I, I remember a couple years ago an urging of the Holy Spirit to pray for my brother. I'll never forget it. I was at, at work, and all of a sudden, I just had this overwhelming sense. Pray for Ron. You've got to pray for Ron right now. Stop what you're doing and pray for him. So I did. No idea why. Hadn't a clue what was going on. A few months later, we're having a, uh, a family barbecue. We got talking. And to my surprise, my brother relays this story. He is uh, an environmental biologist working for the government. He was on a lake up in Muskoka in one of their large warehouses, and a horrific storm crossed over the lake and hit the, uh, the building he was in. It literally blew off the doors, and, and he said he suddenly found himself clutching to a fridge, 
And as the wind swirled around inside this building, it literally lifted his legs off the ground. And he said to me, I thought this was it. I thought, well, this is how I'm going to die. This is it. And so he's hanging on to this fridge with his legs off the ground. He's a six-foot-two fella, muscular, and this is the only thing that saved him. At least he thought. I said, Ron, when did that happen? And I discovered that the exact moment that I had been praying was the exact moment that God had spared his life. See, it's, it's an example that time and space is no issue for the living God. You pray all the time for people you do not know who are thousands of miles away from where you are today, and God works, and God works, and God works. That's an example of this here. Because we have a God who is full of mercy and a God who is absolutely sovereign over all things. You see, the whole point of John's gospel is the greatest miracle that God wants to perform in you today is the miracle of the new birth. It's the miracle of the new birth. Truth of the matter is we are lost in our sin and we are dead in sin. And we desperately need the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and to awaken our dead hearts to the living Christ. And that's the work that Jesus came to perform. That's the work that Jesus is able to do. No matter where you are and no matter what's going on in your life, he is the only one who can, who can change and awaken a dead heart. And so John spends a great deal of his time on one of his central themes in his gospel, and that's about life, eternal life, spiritual life that's found only in the Son. He is the author of it, he is the possessor of it, and he is the giver of it. And we see that in our text. You see, I think there's a play on words here. When he said, Jesus said, and it comes up twice in our text, your son will live. I think there's a play on word here. I don't think that's just physical life that Jesus gave that son. I think it's also spiritual life. Because the text says that his whole household came to believe. That would include his son. And so God performed a greater miracle that day than just his physical healing. He, before, he performed a spiritual miracle, and he awakened this young boy's heart. So authentic biblical faith is more than spiritual curiosity. It's more than a blind leap in the dark. It's more than a one-time decision. It's a lifestyle. It's a relationship. It's continuing, informed, dependence, deepening commitment to the living Christ, to following him, to being changed by him, and to being on mission with him. Very quickly, application. Application. Here's what I want you to do, friends. I want you to see each day as a new day to follow Jesus by faith again. When your hit, feet hit the floor, Resolve by God's grace and mercy that this day you will walk by faith again and you'll walk through every door that God opens before you. Second, see each day as a new day to grow in faith as you follow Jesus again. See every circumstance in your life, however hard, as new opportunities for God to strengthen and to stretch your faith. Thirdly, See each day as a new day to trust by faith in the nature and work of Jesus again. Rest in him because he alone is the sustainer and giver of life. Fourth, 
See each day as a new day to be on mission with Jesus by faith. Look for what God is already at work around you. Join him in his work and be amazed at the opportunities, big and, sp big and small, that he will give you to share your faith. Fifth, see each day as a new day to see God at work. Knowing that he really does hear your cry, he really does know your need, and he really is able to meet your need both physically and spiritually. Six, see each day as a new day to take every anxiety and every trouble of your day to God in persistent prayer, knowing that we have a God who through faith has conquered kingdoms and administered justice and has fulfilled his promise. And one quick word to those of you this morning who are outside with Jesus, and that is simply this. Be aware. Be aware that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's, stop. it's time to stop questioning who Jesus is. It's time to stop making excuses for not trusting in Jesus. And it's time to confess that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And the end result will be this. You will be saved. Let me pray. Father, I know we had much to cover this morning. But Lord, your longing and desire is that we would have authentic faith in the living Christ. We wouldn't just be those who are at the window looking in, but rather we'd be those, Father, who possess Jesus fully and who know him intimately because we have placed our full faith not only in his work but in his person. And so, God, would you work in hearts this morning for your glory, and I'd ask this in Christ. Amen. The entire emphasis of John's gospel is this. And there's a slide coming up one way. If he could choose a sign, that would be the one John would choose because he parks it all through his gospel. Frankly, that's what our kids discovered this week, didn't they? One way, one way. I came across this quote and I'm just gonna end with it. Listen to this. It says, a man may go to heaven without health, without riches, without honors, without learning, without friends. But he can never go there without Christ. May you share that this week with your friends and family to God's glory. Amen.